poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness. Now, nestled in the foothills of a mountain range, Greatness Village is the promised land the Chasing Poker Greatness community calls home. Here, you'll find elite teachers, aspiring pros, and primitive tribal warriors who grew tired of their old ways and found a better path. These are the stories of Greatness Village on Chasing Poker Greatness. Well, hello there, boys and girls. Welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, Coach Brad Wilson, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com. Today, I'm joined in a villager-centric episode by Danny Handichak. He has it in his bio here, pronounced Handichak. Handichak. Um, Danny is a lawyer and a converted former MTT player who's now entering the cash game streets. Danny, how you doing, sir? Welcome to the show. Doing great. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to be here. Uh, we didn't talk about it in the pre, but uh, when I looked back at all the other guests, um, you know, going all the way back to when you started, I see uh, we got Helmy with most bracelets ever. Uh, we got Cop, Brian Koppelman who wrote and made rounders, the biggest cash game crushers on the planet, Kuhn and Phil Galfon and uh, uh, Jungle Man. Uh, main event winners and then poker nobody uh, i can hear i can hear the uh, i can hear people turning off their podcasts as we speak right now being like who nah, nah, nah. i'll listen to something else <laughs> hopefully hopefully not but hopefully not but i'm gonna do everything in my power to make it a sexy title so that people click and yeah they, they're they're like oh I, I took too much energy getting here i made three clicks i can't start right, listening right something well else it's now. an honor, honor to be here for sure thanks for yeah, having me it's a pleasure man and I love these episodes because as I was telling you in the, the pre-interview that gives me a chance to get to know the villagers, you know, my people much better. And that's great for me. And I think for the listener to the aspiring poker player, people that are on a very similar journey or trajectory to themselves, I think they identify with. And so I think it is important to have y'all on and tell your stories, talk about your struggles and what you've learned over, you know, your years of kind of chasing poker greatness. Um, so from there, we'll start out with uh, talking about how did you get into the world of cards? Um, a long time coming. I mean, I uh, grew up in a family, my mom's parents, so my, my uh, granny and papa, as we call them on my mom's side, uh, lived in Akron, Ohio. They made frequent trips to the Mountaineer uh, Casino, which was in... Uh, which is in West Virginia and gambling was just in their blood. Um, we're going to visit them all the time. They had a uh, poker five card draw handheld little games that I remember playing all the time. They would play poker that not poker necessarily, but the gambling blood kind of went down to my mom. She's always loved gambling and that, and then that fell down uh, to my part of the tree. So it's always been a little bit in, in my blood, but um, getting into specifically poker, um, probably started with me and my best friend who's also name is, is Danny. Um, when we were younger, his dad would have 
big business parties at their house with all, you know, all the business associates and people that worked at their company. And they would always turn into a poker game at some point in the end of the night. And we'd be there just watching, watching money fly back and forth, watching them play games like, uh, you know, night baseball, screw your neighbor, you know, all those sorts of goofy games. How it was old fun to you? watch. We were probably at that point and maybe 10, 11, um, watching that happen. And they would have it every year or so. So, you know, as we got older, we saw it more. And every once in a while, he'd probably, I think there was a handful of times he got to jump in the game and play for a little bit uh, and things like that. So that was always fun. So that was kind of the first introduction to getting into poker. And then moving on to college, then it started to get a little more serious. Now it gets into the Hold'em, you know, aspect of, of kind of how poker evolved as we all know it in the public. Um, and started to get involved there, but it was actually pre-moneymaker really is when I started to get into it though. Yeah, you're 39 years old, so two years older than me. And so at that time in college, that was pre-moneymaker, probably around the year like 2000 or so. Yeah, yeah. Graduated high school 2000, started in college um, in Chicago um, in 2000. And that was right when Rounders was coming out. Um, I think it came out in 2000, uh, saw it. And then that really just grabbed me as far as Hold'em and poker and um, was already a big Matt Damon fan, loved Good Will Hunting. It's still like my favorite movie of all time. And it was a story about a guy who is a lawyer, you know, which is something I was interested already in doing. And then playing poker and the skill aspect of it definitely jumped out. Like, oh, this isn't just a game you play drinking with your business associates and whoever gets lucky wins. There's actually some skill to it. And once I saw that, then the interest really popped as far as playing the game more seriously, studying, getting more involved and began to escalate from there. So I assume games of strategy, something that you've latched onto throughout your life, something that things that pique your interest. Um, I think competition more so than games of strategy. Cause you know, I, whenever you listen to poker stuff, you read people, uh, poker books, people always have a background of magic and magic the gathering and chess and all this sort of stuff i i've got none of that i don't know how to play chess i've never played magic the gathering never was in any of that sort of stuff me neither um, so we yeah. got that in common yeah it was it was really i mean sports a lot growing up um you know just playing sports and being competitive in that nature and then that competitive aspect definitely transferred to poker because it was something that you could actually work at and study at and get better at like you can practice a sport or something and transfer that to beat other people and then actually make some money off it potentially too. Um, and it just was immediately drawn, drawn to it. And the funny part is, is part of the draw was, oh, you can play cards and maybe you can make some money. Like that's easy money. Looking back on it, I've been playing for, you know, 20 some years, studying all the time, playing all the time. And one, I'm not making tons of money off it. Um, I'm playing as a, someone's got a job and a family and a recreational player generally that, that studies and works at it. But I put so much time into it. It's, it's the farthest thing from easy money in the world. Yeah. Hard way to make an easy living. I yeah, think that's, that's for sure. Very, I, I think Doyle said that, but, and it's very, uh, very short and oversimplification, but like, man, it rings so true that like, you know, I, I've talked about it a lot because I, I've done a lot of these villager interviews. I, this is a funny thing about podcasting is that like the people listening to this now are, God only knows what month it is, but it's August as we're recording this. It'll probably be like October, November when this gets released. And I'm going through the elites program right now. It'll end in August. I only run it twice a year. And 
it's never more obvious in anything else that I've ran than in that program of poker being a hard way to make an easy living, seeing the day-to-day -day swings, the super highs. I mean, yesterday I did an elite, uh, I did an optimization session with Peter and he had just come back from like a retreat. He's calm, he's chill, he's relaxed. You know, it was like, man, we don't got much to optimize here. Like you're operating, firing on all cylinders. And then we enter our session and uh, later that night, he posts a video where like the train just came off the tracks and he's just like a mess. And it's like, holy shit, like that, that escalated real quick. And that's the thing that you learn by seeing those videos day in and day out. It's like, we're all, everybody that's on the path of like being a pro, the highs and the lows come quick and they're very hard to work your way out of them, even for like experience and weathered veterans. Yeah, no, for sure. When people, you know, every once in a while, there will be some chat in the village of people saying, oh, have you ever, to not just meet other people, have you ever considered trying to play full time or something like that? And I've always thought, no, I mean, there's an allure to it, especially back when you're younger, like, oh, I, I, maybe I could do this. But now that I'm a little bit older, it's, I got so much respect for people that do this for a living, the swings, the emotional levels, the, you know, all the things that you have to deal with and the work you have to put in just to be successful. And then all the people that fail, like it, it and then you got to talk about things like health insurance, things like that, you know, that the people take for granted that people, with the regular jobs, you know, have, and it's, it's just really, uh, respect demanding about those that can't do it. And I think it's really difficult, um, for anyone to, to take that jump and regardless of whether or not you have the skill level to do so, um, just the other, you know, corollary side things that go into it is just crazy. Oh yeah. Skill's not enough. And this is a story I've seen play out many times in my career where somebody has got all the skill and all the talent in the world. And yet they still either a have some sort of tendency to degen that they can overcome, whether that be through pits or just gambling, uh, just, you know, gambling games, whether it be strip clubs, I've seen strip clubs undo players where they just drop like 50 K in a club over the course of like a week or two weeks of just binging and playing while, you know, you're inebriated, like being drunk and yeah. playing or playing black. I mean, it's just so many different pitfalls that can ruin you when your tool in this world is money and you can certainly be a winning player year in and year out and spend yourself broke. Like that's very, very easy to do. So yeah, basically I think that it's better to get into it when you're younger and kind of stupid <laughs> and have no visibility yeah. of all the pitfalls because then you just kind of don't know and you're ignorant and you just kind of make your way through it. Um, but yeah, looking back on it, it's amazing that it's really amazing to me that anybody can make it in this world over the long term, just because it's so difficult and like doing it by yourself. I look back at my journey and the years that I was by myself and it's like, I don't know how I did it to be honest. I can't, you. no, I can't imagine. I mean, the way that, the way that I feel like it would have to be done. If do you remember that show two months, two million. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was when you're young, when I, you know, younger and you see that, like that's, that's the fun aspect of where you think, okay, they, these guys move into a house together. They're in Vegas. They're having fun. They're grinding. They're playing all the time. If you got the discipline to actually do the work and the study and still play, Doing it alone, I feel like, is would be nearly impossible. Doing it with a little crew of people that stay on each other and help each other stay on the same track and study and understand the the lifestyle and everything that goes into it, that's where I think you could really uh, prosper 
doing it alone, you know, that's really impressive that you did alone for a long time because it's hard. I appreciate that. And to spoil two months, two million, by the way, for the listener who hasn't seen it, they got nowhere fucking close to making two million in yeah. two months. Like they failed <laughs> spectacularly. And sort of, I think at the end of the show, they were resigned to their fate and they, uh, the motivation kind of waned, which is a thing that like, I think that the premise of the show was a good premise. I just think that like whenever you have these expectations and you set these expectations, um, at least I, I've talked about it on the show in my experience, they never come to fruition. You're set, setting yourself up for failure when you try to put these expectations out there. But well, especially, um, I mean, you, you talk to men, you know, mental game people and, and everyone that tells you, you know, variance is going to be out there. You got to set your goals based upon decision-making and play and not on making a certain amount of money. So the very premise of just setting a dollar amount that they wanted to make for a summer is, you know, is going to have problems in and of itself because then you're pushing to, to hit that goal rather than just play well. Yeah. And if you say two months high level play, that's not a very sexy <laughs> right. title no, for, no. for a program, right? No, not at all. Um, let's go back to you. So you gain visibility of poker in high school or high school in college. You're studying to be an attorney. Obviously, Rounders resonates with you quite well because Mike McD is in school to become a lawyer. And uh, what was next as it related to, you know, you learning about poker? What steps did you take? Uh, improving your ability to play poker and then like did poker just disappear for a number of years and you circle back to it or has it always been a part of your your life yeah no it's well it's definitely always been there in in different levels but um, I would say right at that same time when seeing rounders getting to college starting to take it more seriously that was also coming right in line with coming off of uh a very rare immune deficiency disorder that I had at the end of my high school um, time, this uh, disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, and what it basically is, is your, uh, your body gets a virus, then your immune system kills the virus and then doesn't know the virus is gone and starts killing nerve cells in your body. Mm. So um, in my circumstance, I had strep throat, um, got sick, and then all of a sudden after recovering from strep throat, started feeling numb, numbness and tingling in my legs and things like that. They didn't know what it was um, and finally get diagnosed with this, with this disease. There's no cure for it. It basically just runs its course. And in serious circumstances, there's people that have been paralyzed, people that have died. I had a very, I would say, mild uh, course of it in the grand scheme of things. It basically um, killed all the nerve cells from my waist down. So I was playing high school soccer at the time. I wasn't going to college to play anything like that. I was not that good, but played competitively, played on a travel club soccer team, things like that. Uh, when I was in uh, middle school and going into high school, um, killed all of that. And that was the competitive drive was sports and playing soccer and that sort of thing. And I could barely walk. I couldn't run, could barely walk, um, had to do all sorts of rehab and acupuncture and all sorts of things just to get back to semi-normal. And then it was never the same again, because when you lose that, I think, competitive edge where you can actually compete at a super high level, then at least for me, I lost some of the competitive edge of really needing to win and wanting to win because it was like, well, my legs don't really work that well anymore. So I don't have that opportunity. And I think that transferred into then poker was an outlet for that competition and started reading books. So then I get to college, see rounders and started um, reading books, got super system, um, I remember going back, actually, I'd heard of Super System and then going back in rounders and pausing the VHS tape, I think at the time, maybe it was a DVD, 
of him opening up super system because my cover looked different than his because <laughs> in the movie it's the original cover mm-hmm. um, to make sure it was the same book but reading super system reading i think the harrington books were out by then but i can't remember for sure but just starting a tj cloutier had a book just starting to learn the strategies of how to do it and then hosting home games a lot of time you know tons of times in college and um just as you've heard from other people on your podcast just studying and knowing what you were doing even though you weren't good was going to give you a leg up and started winning you know winning consistently at these home games just from having studied that uh through books and, and things of that nature um and really figuring out some sort of a strategy that you can actually have to be successful and then seeing it work and then that was motivating even more to continue doing it yeah getting getting positive results are really great that's good feedback mechanism yeah. um, un- unfortunately in poker it's not always pure <laughs> the feedback mechanism in place yeah yeah well i remember think, thinking so i mean i when i first started playing i was super tight player i thought that and that was a winning formula back then in at least in these stupid college you know home games and people friends would sure. come over and play um and there was one guy that would always play in the game who we saw as a maniac you know was just constantly raising shoving re-raising all that sort of stuff and he was just like oh he's a maniac and he's not good. He's a look at how many pots he plays and how lucky he gets. And looking back on it, he was the brilliant one. He was the one who was really playing the right aggressive strategy. And, and I don't know if he knew he was doing it, but he was, and he might have known it. And he wasn't just getting lucky. He was, he was a good player and he just wasn't, uh, we saw him or I saw him as a undisciplined, not tight player like I was. And he was just a nut that got lucky. And I was the one who was supposed to win. Um, and that, that definitely wasn't the case. He was definitely brilliant. Yeah, beware being the person whose strategy everyone, every mediocre player agrees with. Yeah. Uh, because most of the time that means you're playing at a mediocre level. I yeah. think even looking back uh, at like Tom Dewan doing things that nobody really understood and everybody thought he was just insane and out of his mind, but like he was just way ahead of the curve and just operating at a level that other people didn't understand, which obviously means he's got a massive edge, which should be where you always strive to be is ahead of the curve to where people think you're an idiot when actually you just know things they don't know. Yeah. And then being willing to accept that your perception is that, you know, I think for a lot of people and me included perception it probably means more than it should as far as, well, I want to be seen as the one who really knows what he's doing, not getting lucky. Um, you got to be confident enough in your strategy that you are so high above everyone else that you don't care if they look at you like a nut because you're the one who's winning. You're the one who's actually ahead of, of everybody else and not caring that you're perceived that way. And also not having the ego to be like, Hey guys, actually I'm smarter than you and here's why. And then all of a sudden your edge is gone. Cause then now, now they know exactly what you're doing. Well, the ego's there one way or the other, Danny. Uh, sorry to rain on the parade, but like <laughs> even when it's internal and you're like, it's kind of like a joke, right? It's kind of like, you know what they don't know, but they don't know what they don't know. And so, you know, that's where your edge is. And so like any criticism is just kind of not, it's, it's easy to just swipe away because you're like, yeah, cool. That criticism that they're giving me is like the reason why I'm able to crush them. So like, that doesn't so like you do have an ego even when you're ahead of the curve and you know oh, yeah. They, yeah. What, what they don't know but you do it's this weird mix of like assertiveness and humility that really makes for high level poker players we have to believe in what we're doing and trust what we're doing and be able to say like yeah great opinion over there but you keep doing that and see how see how it works out for you 
on one hand. And then on the other hand, we have to be like, ah, oh, shit, maybe they're right. Like, let's see, well, <laughs> let's dive and, and in and see whether I'm right about this or not. And that's one of the great things about, I'm sure we'll talk, you know, a little bit later as far as, you know, what goes on in the greatness village and the Slack community, but the difference of opinion, you know, someone will post a hand and there will be different opinions from brilliant professional players that disagree. I love seeing you and Thomas go back and forth on disagreeing on strategy and hands. And if one of you were removed, I'd be like, well, this is obviously the solution. What Brad just said is, is perfect play. And if you were removed and Thomas had a different, you know, perspective, and I'd be like, well, obviously this is the right play. This is exactly what he's saying. And that makes sense. And to see that going at it and understanding that other people who are great at the game and have different opinions on it, it all have different valid points as far as these strategical uh, solutions. Yeah. I'm Thomas, me and Thomas, we all, we've always disagree. I don't know what it is. We, we just always like somehow land on opposite sides of the fence as it relates to our opinions in a lot of these spots. Um, the one thing, one thing I'm going to say about Thomas, this is like for the podcast. So everybody can hear this. I said, bet me money. Here's the bet right here. Anybody in the village is open to taking this bet and not one person took it and I was wrong. So, you know, <laughs> in my, in my opinion, like I won the argument because I'm willing to put my money behind my opinion and nobody else was. So Thomas, next time you come at me, come at me, bring your money and we'll, we'll throw down. And I think that's like, if somebody's not confident enough in their opinion that they don't want to bet, Okay. I think oh, I just yeah. win I've, by default. I've always said that I've in my, the fantasy football league with all my friends from home that I'm in, which I'm terrible at. I'm consistently <laughs> at the bottom of the league because I just, <laughs> I just look at a draft sheet and I draft whatever guy's next and I plug a play lineup and other people are much better at it than me. But every time, you know, I've made a trade and everyone's like, you're an idiot or whatever. First thing I always say is, all right, let's hundred bucks. Like, is this guy going to score more points than this guy to the end of the year? And almost nobody ever takes it. Um, and then, you know, that's my aha. Well, then you're obviously not confident in your position if you're not willing to put some money on it. Um, and then usually I'm wrong anyway. And, <laughs> and they, and at the end of the year, I finished last and I'm the laughing stock, but nobody <laughs> took the bet. So, uh, usually nobody took the bet. Yeah. I think, uh, the, the funny part about the bet that I was proposing to the village and to Thomas specifically is like, I'm supposed to lose more often than I win because of pot odds. And so like, I know that my position that I'm putting myself in is like, I lose more often than I win. And like, I'm okay with that. And I think that this is like just a sort of a lesson or a metaphor as it relates to just poker is like, you can be very confident that you win in a spot more than like 30% of the time, but it might be 35%. So you still lose more often than you win. But like, you're still supposed to call because you're going to win 35%. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for obviously people don't know what we're talking about. I posted a hand maybe a week or so ago. I don't remember the details right now without looking at it, but uh, post hands and I was in this spot. Here's a tough river spot and it blew up into hundreds of posts and reposts and debates and, and Brad willing to bet everybody in the community <laughs> that his, that his decision was right. And the best part was I posted it right after the hand took place. Um, after playing in the morning, posted it on my way to work this all blows up and we know in 24 hours I get to find out what my opponent had because it's on ignition where you get to see their whole cards eventually when you look at the hand histories. So, so much fun watching that debate that, you know, you and Thomas, which reminded me like brothers going at it. Um, and then knowing, all right, tomorrow morning I get to log <laughs> on and click this and I get to reveal the, re, you know, the result that proves mm -hmm. who won and who lost. And, uh, and yeah, that was definitely fun. That was great. 
it, it was one of my favorite threads in the village. It was, it was really fun. Um, I couldn't go Thomas, no matter what I did, I couldn't go to him into making the bet is like <laughs> very bizarre. I think at some point he just like his stubborn nature set in and he's like, no, I'm just not going to, because Brad wants me to, I'm not going to bet. <laughs> um, but going back to, you know, your college years and then graduating school, basically diving headfirst into your professional career, where was poker as your, you know, basically growing as an attorney and climbing up the different rungs and reaching different levels of success. So in between the summer, in between when I finished undergrad and then was starting law school in the fall, there was basically, you know, two, three months from graduating college to starting law school that um, was off time. And what I ended up doing, because I had been studying and playing is I decided I'm going to, I have this time, I'm going to basically play full time and kind of just enjoy it and see how it goes. It wasn't a test run to go pro or anything. I knew I was going to law school. I knew I wasn't going to try and be a pro poker player, but um, it was like a fun kind of self challenge to see, can I, can I do this and succeed? So I essentially played full time back then. They weren't even, this is 2004. They weren't even really spreading no limit games in casinos. So it was limits still. Um, Cause money makers Oh three, I think. So it probably took till later in Oh four or Oh five to actually start spreading a bunch of no limit games. Yeah, at least when, around here. When I was playing in 2004, 2005, there was no, no, no limit cash. It was either no limit was like tournaments and then cash was like 10, 20. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what it was. I mean, I ended up going to what was then the Trump casino riverboat just across the Illinois, Indiana border in, uh, in Hammond and basically played there every day and played five, 10 limit, 10, 20 limit. And that even looking back on it, it seems like every stage in my life, I look back on what I did then when I thought I was doing something awesome and be like, wow, what, what an idiot you were, or what, you know, how did you think that you were actually doing well at that point? Cause I thought in my mind, Oh, look at me, I'm Mike McD. I'm going to go play <laughs> limit poker and for the summer and, and that. And I remember going and sitting down and, um, playing in these games and there was a guy that was there all the time. So reg as we would call them now. And I was sitting next to him one day and I kept getting small pocket pairs and calling a raise and then folding every flop and catching in. And at one point I got frustrated and I showed this guy, I'm like, here's another one. And I mocked it as a raise. And, and he leaned over and he's like, have you ever thought of three betting when you get that? And I looked at him like, what? But it's, I got a pair of fives. Why would I three bet? And it was just, Looking back on it now, I knew nothing. And I thought I was some, you know, some experienced person coming in. And I even said to him, I think he asked me during that same session, you know, what your name is and, and you know, how'd you end up here? Or what's your story a little bit? And I said real confidently, oh, you know, I play a lot in these home games and I haven't lost in eight straight home games back, you know, back in my dorms or whatever. And, and I know the guy just looked at me like, you fucking idiot. Like oh, eight, eight, eight home games with a bunch of drunk college guys that know nothing uh, about poker. Like, welcome to my game that I actually play all the time. Um, and I survived, but I'm sure I, I, I lost. Um, but that was eye-opening doing that and, and seeing that next level of play that was, that was out there. And one other thing that for some reason has always stuck in my mind was playing in a 10-20 game, a pot I wasn't even involved in, but see these two guys raising going back and forth and back and forth and they get to the river and a four flush hits and the one guy bets and the last act guy raises now it's limit so there should have been pot as the call just about anything 
but raises uh, on the four flush and the uh, the other opponent mucks and he shows that he didn't have the flush. And I just thought like, wow, you can do something like that? Like you can raise and he knew, he, I mean, he just knew the other guy didn't have a flush or didn't have a, a good flush and that he could get him to fold by just raising. And that was another eye-opening out of my league type of thing to see that. And it was a fun summer. It was good. I have no idea what my actual results were, but I'm sure I was, if I was lucky, I broke even. I'm sure I probably lost, but, uh, but it was a good time. That was the next kind of big step. Yeah. It's the, uh, you know, the problem, the problem was your introduction was through rounders, right? When, you know, Mike McD, you know, check raises Chan and, you know, Chan, uh, looks at him like he's a tourist. So he just puts in the third bet and then Mike McD just four bets him on the flop with, with his rags and Chan folds it, you know, getting like a billion to one pot right, odds. Right. Um, the one scene that I was actually looking back on, like that one doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> and then he bought in and I think he bought, he bought in for like, for like 20 big blinds or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Chan, Chan certainly just gonna gonna bet three bet um this dude that's played like a total nit for hours that's playing short and then just fold to like the the four bet on the flop getting like right. a billion to one. I'm Koppelman. Uh but you know what you know the thing about it is is like Koppelman came on the show, right? And the thing about the strategy of rounders is that like if you wanted to make a realistic poker movie, it would be so boring. Like can you imagine a heads up battle to the death with Teddy KGB that's like realistic? I mean, the movie would be like 72 hours long and just be like a bunch of random folding preflops. Um <laughs> So Oh yeah, it would be it'd be awful. Yeah, the structure Especially of the movie, nowadays. Nowadays it'd be the first, you know, the first 2 hours of the movie would be someone running Sims on Pio and then and then <laughs> sitting down and then sitting down and staring at their computer for the next 2 hours and that would be the movie. Yeah. Not not a very fun or fast paced movie that would be. So like I can I can forgive all the strategic things that happen in Rounders because I think it's a great story. It has lots of tension. It it's the best poker movie. Um, you know that and Cincinnati Kid that I've ever seen. And so honestly, and I've said it on the show too that like my the biggest influence to in my career is probably Mike McD because like that movie was just very influential on me when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It definitely, I mean, that's one that I could watch it every day. Like I watch it a million times, never gets old. It's, it's always just great. And it's always, you know, and then of course I don't know about you. It makes me want to play as soon as the movie's done. Yeah. You know, you can go on Spotify and listen to like, look up the rounder soundtrack and like, listen to that while you're playing. It's oh, not, yeah. not a bad move. Um, you mentioned that like looking back how sort of oblivious you were. And I think that's probably true. Is that true in your um, law career as well? Just looking back 10 years ago and you're like, ah. Oh, yeah. Ah, Danny, what were you thinking? Oh, 100%. There was one, the most, the most glaring one was um, when I was probably, I'd been, probably been a prosecutor for maybe five or six years within our prosecutor's office. We're in Chicago. It's a huge office. So it takes a long time to actually make your way to where you are actually trying real cases, violent crimes, things like that. You got to do a lot of dues paying. And I was maybe five years in, I was in a, a narcotics related unit where we prosecuted big narcotics cases in that if someone got caught with, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars worth of dope, then we would take on that case and we would, and we would handle it. Um, and it was in a unit that I was just handling those cases. So my best friends in the world were assigned to that unit. It was so much fun. Um, and part of 
our cases, as a lot of them are, were gang related, you know, drugs moving through gangs and things like that. But we were just prosecuting these drug cases and that was it. Um, I got a call or an email from my former law school. They were doing a, uh, like a catalog of basically all the former graduates and where they were and what they were assigned to and asked for like a one sentence blip of what you were doing. And like an idiot, uh, I made my blip something like I'm in this narcotics unit where I prosecute high level drug and gang cases. Well, that's definitely an embellishment of what we were doing at the time. And there's actually a real gangs unit that prosecutes real gang murders and real legitimate big cases. And, um, I thought I sounded cool writing it and that it was kind of true, but sure. It made me sound probably better than, you know, more important than I really was. And it got published and I show up to work and people have photocopied you know, <laughs> as, as a prank on me to expose, you know, what an idiot I am have photocopied the publication that has done this and like highlighted it. And of course the people that are in this gangs, you know, who are much more experienced and it's an awesome, you know, with some of the best trial attorneys in the world and they see it and they're like, look at this punk, like, who does he think he is? And I still like, even telling the story now, like get a pit in my stomach, having to show up to work being like, why did I do that? That, <laughs> that was such a stupid, stupid thing to do to try and make myself feel or look cool amongst a bunch of other people that know it's not really that's, that that's what it was and it immediately exposed for it. And that was just a definitely one of those situations for sure. And I think it's just a natural path of life that like we gain experience, we grow, and then we kind of look back with a little bit of like cringe and shame at our past selves. Like, Oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe oh, I yeah. can't believe I thought that. Um, <laughs> so sure. like, as your, you know, your professional career is taking off, um, you said poker was like a constant throughout the whole time. So when, when did you switch from like, I believe you went from MTTs to cash, right? Yeah. I mean, I always played some cash. Obviously, you know, I, I was playing that limit. Um, and then when I was in law school, I was still playing a ton. That's when the online boom starts to hit. Mm -hmm. um, I was playing all the time, like every other 23-year-old white guy in the US. I was playing on poker sites and, and uh, playing on full tilt and playing on the, my favorite one to play on was um, a site called pokerroom.com. I don't know if do you remember pokerroom.com. I don't actually, I don't. It was so, that was my favorite to play on. Um, it was regular tonight, not as big as, as ultimate bet was or full tilt or, um, or poker stars or whatever. But I remember playing on that and their software <clears throat> was doing well, then play, playing cash, playing tournaments on there. Again, same, same thing, playing my tight, tight, uh, kind of strategy that I, this still was playing from college. And their software, you didn't sit down with a, um, an icon that was you or your picture or something like that. You were just placed in a seat that was a cart cartoon type character. There was a, there was a woman, there was a man, there was a cowboy, there was, um, you know, all these different looking people and just whatever seat you got, you were that person during the gameplay. Um, and to show the, the real class acts that, that populate online poker, especially back at the time, is I remember during a game sitting on poker room and I was in the seat of the uh, African-American guy and, you know, I put a bad beat on someone and then the guy goes in the chat and is berating me and starts using racial slurs, <laughs> which was just, I mean, not only are you a terrible human for even thinking that way and vocalizing that way, but 
you're yelling at a character that's not even me. You're using a racial slur against a fake computer character that is not even actually me. Um, and I remember thinking back to that and just thinking how hilarious that was. And that really, that kind of mentality was also why I never got into any of these other two plus two communities or groups. I just never found any value in that really until Greatness Village as far as that stuff, because everything seemed to be always so negative and always so um, critical. Yeah. But, I uh, mean, well, see, it's hard for me to even like recall this lifestyle because like for the past 10 years, I've been battling on an anonymous site where I don't have a screen name and like there's no chat. And so like you can't interact with anybody. So you're just kind of like player number four. Um, but you know, there's a lot of downside to having chat, chat functionality in a poker app. I, I, I remember specifically, I've been called every name in the book. Um, people used to sit and like sweat the games and beg for money. I mean, this oh, yeah. was like so common, like every day there's like five people in the chat that's watching, like begging for $10, like, I, Hey man, can I get $20? Like I'll give you back double in three days and it's like oh my god like um but yeah i do remember yeah the things that people will say in an anonymous environment that they never get called out for that they don't have to atone for are just absolutely fucking horrible i mean it's it's twitter before twitter right or you know something like that where you got people who would never say something to you or to someone else or whatever social cause going on or whatever would never say something like that in real life to someone but on twitter they're um you know they're they're real tough and they're not afraid to be so offensive and things like that and the poker chat room was like that before it even happened yeah it's like the comments on like internet news articles oh yeah i think the description that i read one time that feels like the best description is it's as if the bottom of the barrel had its own bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Those are the type of people that are leaving the comments on internet news articles. Yeah, no, I definitely can sympathize. I mean, as a prosecutor, I obviously work side by side with police a lot of the times. And um, in the current environment, environment where police aren't looked on so favorably by a lot of the public, if you read a news article and then see the comments, it can be really send you down a rabbit hole of anger and you know, depression and fighting the urge to respond and then fight with people and going down that. And it's definitely, you had, I had to stop eventually reading, reading comments and try and stay off of that stuff on, on Twitter too, even though that's where you get a lot of news because it's just a negative, negative environment. Yeah. And I, I'm actually pretty convinced that a lot of the most polarizing individuals on Twitter are probably bots that are just there to stir things up for one reason or another. Like I, I can't, it, it, you mean like bots, like uh, not actual humans being jerks? Correct, or- correct. Trolls. Yeah, Trolls. Like basically, hopefully, I, I know that there's a lot of like disinformation and misinformation campaigns and there's like specifically think tanks of other countries or nations that are maybe adversarial to the US that deploy specific campaigns. And really, the what I've learned about these campaigns is that it's not always to get people to believe something. What the purpose of the campaign eventually, which this actually kind of floored me because it totally worked in my case, was to just not trust anything. To not trust anything that you see or read, any sort of information is really the purpose of dis and misinformation campaigns because it becomes so hard to prove one thing or another that, like, you know, you create a little bit of friction and people just aren't going to jump through the hoop of figuring things out for themselves. 
And yeah, so it's tough, man. The, the world that we live in, especially like social media, Twitter, the news cycle is so immediate that like they get a lot of things wrong. I mean, you're you're in the law world, right? So how often do you see the media misreport something just because they need to get something out there? Oh yeah. No, it's 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 all the time and that's where it can be frustrating because you also as a public, you know, semi public official or whatever, I could never comment on anything or speak to anyone. Like that's not my not that I should or or would want to anyway, but you could never um I've been lucky where I haven't had anything that I personally did that got reported on that was um to the point that I felt like I had to re- reach out and like correct something. But if that happened, I, I feel bad for these people that are the victims of some of these, some of this mis- misinformation and can't really speak out. I know that there was one um, just related to kind of my line of work. I remember seeing an article. Um, I think one of my students, because um, I teach uh, some college classes, um, uh, law related college classes uh, at night. And a student had shown me a headline that was um, this, you know, kid, young kid that um, was sentenced to some time in prison for, they said, for um, stealing a pair of shoes. And the headline was clearly to make the reader who it doesn't read the whole article or doesn't do any background research think that some poor kid walked out of a footlocker with a pair of shoes and they sent him to prison for all this time. You actually read into the story, you're looking in the background, and actually he and someone else had basically set up uh, another kid to buy shoes from him and then put a gun to his head and said, we're going to blow your head off if you don't give us these shoes. And they robbed him at gunpoint. And that's, you know, that's not a, a theft from a store. That's an armed robbery with a gun to someone's head. That's much more serious. But if you didn't read the article or do the background research, you're thinking, I'd look at it this way, like this prosecutor, if that was my name on it, they'd be like, Danny Hanachek put some poor little kid who stole some shoes in jail for six years and ruined this kid's life. That would be, that's a fear for sure of people who, um, who deal, I guess, in, in our aspect of, of the law or things that could be out in the news that that type of thing could happen. And it's definitely scary. And definitely things that people think about too, when they handle cases. Yeah. And I, again, people, I think like journalists need to put something out there and because they don't want to get scooped and they want to be the first to report. And a lot of times that just leads to a bunch of half truths and it's not like purposeful. It's just, they don't have the information. They haven't, they haven't dug deep. You know, I was, I was playing in a home game, uh, I wasn't there, actually. It got busted. Uh, I told the story on the show before, I think, but the, the game gets busted, and the information that came out was like, and I had played in this game twice a week for over a year, and it was like, cops seize like, all these pills. Like They have all these, they, they seize all these drugs. They seize, like, I think it was like high five figures, like uh, close to $100,000 in the room. And I know specifically, like, I brought 5K, to the game every time I went and I brought the most money out of anybody that ever played in that game. And there's just no way there was $100,000 in the room. And the average age of the players playing as it relates to like all the pills was something like 68 years old. Like these are, <laughs> these are people who are like, <laughs> you know, um, orthopedic surgeons and he seized them lawyers. and then immediately gave them back to the guy. Cause he had, a, he, cause he had diabetes and he was going to die if he didn't get his pills back. Exactly. Right. But that's not like the story that was reported and like this illicit gambling ring full of like these prominent, uh, members of the community and yeah. all this stuff. And I just, I just remember like reading the story and thinking like, wow, like this is, this is like firsthand experience of like, I know this will probably get changed and altered over time, but for now, 
like my family's calling me and asking me about it. And I'm like, it's just not true. Like I, I yeah. know I, I, I have firsthand experience in this exact game. Like I, I know that a lot of this is not true, but I mean, like I said, they've got to report something and it's, they're going to sensationalize it if they can, because that's what gets eyeballs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the home game thing too, I, I had been, you know, as through, as the years have gone by, I've been invited to home games, um, games run by people and have always had to be like, nah, I can't, it's not something I can do because even though it's not, you know, it's not really a big deal. If I were to be in a game that got busted and they'd be like, Oh, prosecutor an illegal card game or something, that's not, you do a risk, an easy risk reward going to a poker game, um, that gets busted and potentially losing a career is definitely not the proper risk reward, not the pot odds you need to, uh, to yeah. actually enter that pot. Bad, bad pot odds there. Yeah. Like for, for me, it's like, well, to be fair, like after having gone through that and knowing the people firsthand, I know that like, I'm pretty sure none of them went to any sort of jail or prison or anything. And the guy running the game who like, it was a felony. I think he ended up hiring like, I think he ended up hiring the lawyer that was the basis of Matlock or something. <laughs> like he ended up, <laughs> he ended up like basically getting it totally expunged from his record and like nothing happened. But what did happen to him was he lost like half of his business pretty much overnight yeah. because he was running the game out of his business. And so like he had major contracts with like Blue Cross Blue Shield and they, it was like a staffing agency and they just pulled out. So it was pretty catastrophic for his actual business but ultimately i don't think he or anybody really got into any much trouble for like actually running the game and there are other circumstances that kind of went into that that it was like in a populated business park and they were like playing all through the night and like their oh, yeah. staff was showing up and yeah, the there, game was, uh, there. was there there has to be something else involved or going on for you know there's so much real more serious crime going on for people yeah. to focus on like, Oh, these guys playing poker. They had to be again, something else, other business people in the area saying they're sick of, you know, sick of people smoking outside or something like that. I, that I, they, yeah. I think in a big part of that was there was a disgruntled person that worked there that had knew of the game and just was like calling and reporting it every single week, just like incessantly. And I think yeah, that cops that are like, have, we cannot have this guy call more time. Let's just go. <laughs> let's just go and see what happens. We don't care, but let's just go because we can't take any more of these phone calls. Yeah. And I've said it before. Somebody got shot in that raid, actually. Like it, it went very sideways. Um, thankfully, I wasn't there, but yeah. somebody did end up like running out the back door and they thought that they were getting uh, bust. They thought they were getting robbed. And yeah, they ran away from the cops. The, he got shot in the back as he was running away. It was like, a, it, it was a major news story in my uh, Chattanooga, where, where Tennessee. Was it at? Oh, in Tennessee? Yeah, Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah. In a world where a fish dog bets the flop and you don't know what to do, one man, Coach Brad Wilson, has a surefire plan to neutralize flop leads that dunk to shreds. Nuffle. Available now. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash Nuffle. Rated R. 100 NL player, former Sergeant Elijah Shears. Before I got Nuffle, I had run into a lot of dock bets. And I think once you play a certain amount of hands, you know there's something wrong with our opponent's strategies, but you don't know how to play to maximize CP against it. And it's 
very frustrating. I looked at the document and I couldn't believe that I paid money for it. I actually doubted that it could provide value because it was so brief. But since then, it's repaid me just over and over and over again. And it's one of the most consistent money makers built into my strategy that sheds light on just how bad your opponents are. And it took me 20 minutes to perfect it. And it's just amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm speechless. It's just that good. The simplicity of it is part of it being a masterpiece. <laughs> Nuffle. Go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash courses. So you start playing more cash games. Tell me about how did you find Greatness Village? Like, how did that come on your radar? Um, so I, um, you kind of asked how poker, I guess to explain it really, you kind of asked how poker still played a role in my life going mm -hmm. through and really I've always, I mean, always continued to play. So still even post, um, post Black Friday um, would still play on, um, you know, carbon merge network type things that were still out there, smaller sites and would play. And then as work got more serious, continued to progress in, in my job and then throw on teaching and throw on family and things like that. Basically what had kind of, I would say devolved to was um, the most frequent kind of play was go to work all day, come home, hang out for a while, and then fire up a nightly usually $109 tournament on carbon and max late reg. Like by the time I got home from work and we eat and there's family time and stuff, I'm registering with 20 minutes to go and it's eight big blinds or 10 big blinds and was able to actually still, you know, still spike some tournaments, still, still not, um, you know, ruin a poker bankroll that I've maintained all the way back since law school. That's I've never had to, um, you know, go broke and, 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 take money out of the actual bank accounts. It's always been there. It's a fluctuating amounts, but it's always been there. And it was just unsustainable. Um, and that was the only site I could play on because you can't go on uh, America's card room and play a 10 hour tournament when you have a regular life. Um, it's just impossible to do. So I was playing this nightly tournament on, on carbon that would usually wrap up if you, if you want it by maybe uh, 11 o'clock or something like that. And if you didn't win though, you're min cashing or you're not cashing or whatever. And it was just unsustainable. So I finally kind of made the decision and I had never really won consistently playing online cash. Um, just couldn't do it for whatever reason. I, I'm, I mean, I knew I didn't, I know looking back on it, I didn't have the proper training and skill to be playing a lot of online cash, but even doing it, I just could never get any momentum. Um, um, my skill level just wasn't there. And would lose and then would just go back to the tournaments because having reasonable success at these tournaments. So I finally made a decision. I'm done. This, this can't be sustained. I now had a little daughter, um, who was there, which is taking up even, you know, even more time. Um, and then playing fatigued also, which, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, just totally changing the play schedule and lifestyle, but just decided I'm done. I'm going to quit tournaments. I joined pokercoaching.com. Um, which is how I ended up ended up finding uh, finding you in Greatness Village, but decided I'm going to start studying and learning and actually getting good at online cash. I'm going to do it to a point where I can actually be plus EV playing online cash, know what I'm doing. I know I can do it if I put the work in um, and started studying there. Um, that led me to, I think, the podcast or um, or your first, I think, introduction of when uh, when you were going to join poker coaching and then you know join the newsletter, found the village and really it's been a poker life-changing event to find greatness village and to find you know all the courses that have come out of cbg and all that 
which basically was last late, maybe about a year ago, a little, little less than a year ago. And I mean, I'm on the Greatness Village Slack. I've done every single course or I've at least purchased every single course and need to still dive into some of them. Um, but um, it's definitely been, it's been life-changing. And now I don't even have the desire to play tournaments. I, every once in a while, I'll fire one up that's just strictly for fun uh, with no, like a stress-free, not grinding, not trying to figure GTO stats. Like this is going to be a fun, have a drink, play this. Don't even care what happens. Um, but the real serious focus because of, you know, greatness village and, and the courses again, has been like, let's, let's get good at cash because, um, particularly on, online cash is something that I actually can do. I can do that from home. I can do that, um, on a schedule with the family and play not tons of volume, but I can actually do it. So if I'm going to be able to do it, might as well learn about it, try and get good at it and try and be profitable at it. Well, let's press a little bit before we before we give too much due to C, the CPG courses and stuff, right? Like what have been the major breakthroughs that you've made through, you know, the courses, boot camp, being a part of Greatness Village that you otherwise wouldn't have made or feel like you wouldn't have made? I would say, yeah, starting with boot camp, um, I was like everyone else who hears an advertisement probably for a pre-flop boot camp and think like, why do I need, I've played poker since, <laughs> high school, why do I need a pre-flop boot camp? Um, well, before, before you go further, I just <clears> want to state for the record that I did market research and before I made my first course, and I can definitively say there was no pre-flop boot camp on the market. <laughs> In my market research, I was like, there's nothing here for this. I think it's a good idea. I think it's impactful and I think it's something people need, but nobody else is selling it. And that's concerning to me. So, and it was certainly not a sexy thing for me to sell either, because again, it's, you know, it's a lot of work doing something that most people think they're actually pretty good at already. Um, so yeah, just for the record, I thought the same thing. And I, I also, uh, realize that like a lot of people would think the way that you did of like, why do I need this, this thing? No. And I, you know, I had done what I'm sure everyone else has. I had found, you know, found GTO ranges online. I had printed them. I had either tried to memorize them or study them or have them near me when I was playing and things like that. But I didn't know the process behind them. I didn't understand what the purpose was. It was just like, all right, well this, this person who runs a poker site, so they must be better than me says, this is what I'm supposed to play. So I'll print these off and I'll try it. Um, the trouble with that also is everything evolves so quickly and moves that what is what you might find online googling a preflop chart <laughs> from two years ago or three years ago nowadays could be so wrong. A great example of that was um, recently considering going to play live. I went to the old poker materials and had um, Ed Miller's The Course, which just came out. I think it was maybe '06 or something like that. Maybe not. Maybe not that long ago, but not forever ago. And looked at the ranges of, you know, playing a nine max live mid, you know, one, two, two, five type of a game and looked at it. And I posted those ranges in the village. Like, what's everyone think of, of these? And it, was, it got like laughed out of the village. Like, this is not, this is crazy. And of course, Ed Miller's, you know, brilliant. He's, I mean, he's been doing poker for God knows how long and written all these books and knows what he's doing. Um, and what he published, at least according to general thought in our community, what he published as far as optimal ranges a handful of years ago are now laughed at 
potentially. Um, well, in respect to Ed Miller, because I don't know any different. That's why I posted it. I thought, oh, great. I still have old range <laughs> I can use if I go play live. Yeah, in Ed Miller's defense, um, it, it's only been a number of years where we've had the ability to kind of solve for preflop spots. Like we've had the computing power, the software, and the ability. And so like this is really, I think, a good a good cautionary tale for using anecdotal evidence to construct ranges and strategies versus using a lot of data and a lot of superpowered software to construct strategies. There's just a major difference. And when it comes to like using anecdotal evidence, you just get it wrong. Like there's just no if, ands, or buts about it. I can't count how many times that somebody's like, oh, in this spot, like, villains never bluffing like they've they've got it 90% of the time and like I'll look at the look at the data and it tells me that they're bluffing like 40% of the time here and I'm like I've never found a spot by the way where they just have it 95% of the time not one spot in the entire tree but as human beings we tend to trend to want to believe absolutes and so we miss out on like the spectrum of in between things and we don't really process it as well but yeah like Again, if Ed Miller would have had the tools that we have now, I'm sure those ranges would have been much better. But it's also a cautionary tale to folks who are listening to this show right now thinking like, I've got a pretty good grasp on this situation. And I would just challenge that with like, if it's based on anecdotal evidence, you probably don't. And there's probably a lot of room for you to grow. Or even think, I mean, like the way that I came across it was I was thinking, all right, if I get the chance to go play live, I'd like to go you know, I've got some materials about live play. Let me go pull it out of the out of the old shelf and see it. And I didn't even, it didn't even click to me. Maybe this could be wrong again because it's like, well, he knows what he's doing and I don't know what I'm sure. doing. So I can trust whatever this book says that Ed Miller wrote. So pulled it out and, and looked at it just so I think that's the other cautionary tale is because you've got this old library of stuff doesn't mean it's relevant now. It might be archaic and it might be so out of date and the game might have passed that by where at one point, that was a brilliant way to play profitably, and now just will never be successful or, or won't be as successful, at least. Yeah, I think another interesting part of this is like what Ed Miller kind of put out there as a model for playing preflop. And I think hilariously, if you were to follow his model, you could probably turn a profit even today just because other people's models are so shitty. <laughs> they have, they're so flawed that like really just having any sort of thing that a high level person has invested lots of energy into creating and putting out there will give you an edge over all these people that just kind of show up and like VPIP 80%. Um, so I think that's, that's actually kind of funny is that like, even if you were to use that playing live, it might be inefficient. It might not maximize, but it probably will still make, still make money even today. Yeah. 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 I could see that. So yeah, you, you, you found the village, you, you went through bootcamp and all the courses and yeah, again, like, what did the courses show you that like you just couldn't, you don't think you would have figured out for yourself? Um, I would say, I mean, the, if anyone asked me why, you know, why should I invest or do one of these courses? Um, it's the way that I look at it, because it's all based on data. Um, it's, they're, I mean, they're essentially cheat codes. They're cheat codes for situational play that you have to be able to implement and you have to be able to, you know, actually understand and be ready to implement and identify the correct situations. But because it's based on millions and millions of real hands with real results and a real play and all this mass data, it's not, 
it's not even theoretical like a solver is where a solver assumes you're playing against another solver and everyone's playing optimal and that's why you do this and you do that unless you no lock for certain situations or whatever but the courses um, that have gone through which have been so helpful as far as this is even if something feels not intuitively right like really i should be calling here i should be raising here but you can rest assured knowing this is coming from 10 million hands saying this is the correct play and then you click the button of what you're supposed to be doing and it works out properly you're like oh i can breathe now (laughs) i can breathe now because it worked and i think that's that's that was the eye-opening thing is this is actual empirical data that tells you this is how you succeed and then you have to put in the work and you have to you know understand the theory behind it a lot of times um and then put in the work to study it which is really hard and, and, and intensive but once you do so you can see it working and then especially for something like you know like nuffle nuffle i mean i like giggle and smile every time it works because it's like silly how simple it is and how profitable it is and that it just shouldn't it seems like it shouldn't work like this and it almost always does and um it's the fact that, again that it's just all database is really the most eye-opening part and the most encouraging part that you know this is right if you can do it properly assuming i i've analyzed the data correctly <laughs> this is the caveat right? right which is the thing that like keeps <clears throat> me awake at night is like did i miss something in here well am but I, here's am i thing, screwing up and the other the other part that is um great about the courses or something that really hit me as far as the courses is that once you buy it and you can stick around in it and you can do it again so when it gets revised or changed um, or updated you can do it again if you want or you can go back and do it at your own pace or um you know i when as soon as feeding frenzy came out i bought it i think was feeding frenzy the one that you said i'll sell it right now even though it's not done (laughs) to make sure i finish it in time yeah i'll give everybody their money back if it's not finished in two weeks you get it for free right so I, I mean, I did that right away and I've only started to get into it because it is, you look at it and it, to me, it can be overwhelming. Um, but it's, um, having the access to that and having the access to when it gets updated and doing it again, or if you don't understand when I did boot camp for the first time, Renee was in it for his second or third time, Howie was in it for his second or third time. You can come back and you can not only access all the stuff from it, because you got access to that in the in the Slack community, but you can actually really do it all over again if you want to and help let it sink in. And that's I don't I've never bought anything else, any other course, any other training or something that allows you that opportunity to do it over and over again if you want to. Uh, I, somebody messaged me the other day, just like a quick aside, and they they were saying like how appreciative they were that they got to do it over and over again, and they said it's just very clear that you don't care about money. <laughs> And I I read the message and I was like, God damn it. I told him I do care about money. I promise I do. Um, (laughs) But I think that like, I think like bootcamp specifically, it's not like it costs much extra energy for somebody to retake it and they've got all the material anyway. So like, what's the point of not letting them retake it? It, It's just like, seems kind of silly to me. Um, and, And what you said about upgrading the courses is like, yeah, I think, in the same way that like poker changes and evolves and strategies get up, up updated and upgraded over time, my methodology that I use to look at things and create things changes and gets upgraded. And like, you know, when I made fish in a barrel, I hadn't made feeding frenzy yet. And then once I made feeding frenzy, it was like, oh, I learned things making this that I can now apply to fish in a barrel, moving, uh, going backward to upgrade it. And then also take 
these learnings and apply it moving forward in future courses. Like Feeding Frenzy has the holy heuristics that I, I've stumbled onto when I was making that. And I'm like, cool, I'm going to start adding this um, sort of feature to my, my courses, just a broad heuristics that you can like just read through and it'll give you like the bulk of the information. And yeah, it's just honestly, Danny, I'm excited to be able to bear down, finish the three bet course and circle back and start upgrading like fish in a barrel and feeding frenzy and bootcamp. I want to upgrade bootcamp using against specific profiles, using data to have some more exploitable preflop strategies. Uh, I want to dive into PLO. I want to start doing some PLO MDA. I want to start doing some full ring MDA. Like I, I have so many future projects that I want to get started on that like my, my energy, my ambitions outstrip my bandwidth and my energy. Oh yeah. I mean that right way you just described is the next five years worth of <laughs> worth of, worth of stuff that, yeah, that, you're ready a, to, that you're ready to start tonight on all of Yeah. And I have like a feeling in the pit of my stomach. That's like, you got to do it. You got to, you got to get in there. You got to do it. And ultimately um, I don't know how this will impact the way that people think about the courses in CPG, the conclusion that I've finally come to is that instead of aiming for perfection with release in the various courses, I need to do something like just get something out there that will perform very well so that there's not nothing. Because if there's nothing, then there's just this like empty space where people are floundering. But even if I release something that's not perfect as it relates to like three bet courses or whatever, then at least there's something and then I can upgrade it over time. But um, I don't like there being just this, these black voids of information across the game tree, just because I haven't been able to finish specific courses. Yeah. Well, and that's the great part. If you go open up super system now, it still says the exact same thing it did when it was released. And the same thing with you know, the books we were talking about it, that's still going to be the exact same print as when you bought it. You know, these things are different because they're all going to be changing and being updated. And therefore you're, you're always, um, keeping in pace with the curve of where things are going. Yeah. And they're, they are more expensive than super system, I guess. And it's a different format. You know, you can't, you could, can't upgrade super system every year. Yeah. Um, but cool, man, moving forward, you know, Tell me about your goals as it relates to poker. Like, wh where do you see yourself at in your journey right now? And where do you want to eventually be? So now, um, I mean, been doing now this strictly cash for just about a year. Um, and it's been progressing well. Um, had another baby this year. So that threw a gigantic wrench into uh, the typical play schedule of how I was doing it and totally kind of flipped upside down. I used to never be a morning person, never. I always played in the evening. Basically, the play style was once the one daughter went to bed and be hanging out with the wife on the couch and she'd watch TV and I'd fire up a game or two and play and that was it. Um, since making this deep dive into cash and all the stuff from the village now, I've gotten into the mental game aspect of it. I have been meditating, which I never did before, and um, realized the unoptimal way if that's even a word that i was playing i think before. it's suboptimal yeah suboptimal we'll, we'll there we go. go um that i was playing before in the way that i was and and made another change right aside i'm just going to get up every morning at four in the morning i'm going to go for a little run um i'm going to meditate and all that and then by six o'clock before anyone else in the house is up i'm going to fire up my games i'm going to start playing and i'm going to play focused and i'm going to play 
um, in these ways that I've learned through this other, you know, mental game study that exercise is going to make you play better. Meditation is going to make you play better. Playing with presence from all Jason Sue's stuff, like all that sort of thing that I couldn't do if I was sitting on the couch with a TV going and, uh, and all that sort of stuff happening. I can actually, by just getting up early and doing all these things first, have an hour or so of time almost every day to just focus and play. And then also I'll, you know, work studying into that time in, instead of playing in the morning. But um, so right now where it's at is basically trying to play an hour or so almost every single day. Of course, there's hiccups here or there and not detracting from my work responsibilities, not detracting from family responsibilities or family time or anything like that because no one else is up. Nothing else is happening. I'm not supposed to be working um, at that point yet. So um, can just strictly focus on poker. And what I want to do, I mean, the end game would be continuing to do that, getting better. Um, I currently play 200 NL. I don't have a strong desire to get up to 500 NL, but if I keep progressing, I would love if that were to be the case. Whoa, uh, whoa, 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 whoa. I saw some hands from 1K and L like a, a few months back. What was yeah, that about? Yeah, I mean, there was some shot take. There's been some shot taking here or there. I, mean, I blame all of that on Tactical Tuesday and John <laughs> and talking about like these fishy moves people at 1K are playing and thinking, <laughs> wait, I, I could beat players with that in there. Um, and it was okay. It wasn't, the wor- it wasn't the worst experience, but really where when I'm firing up, when I'm really playing where I feel like where I should be and as I'm progressing, it's 200 NL for right now and 2.5 when I get the chance to play live and just continuing to learn and progress and be able to do that and turn a solid um, win rate where the, you know, my bankroll continues to grow. And then eventually in the job that I'm in right now, which I started right out of law school, uh, once you've got 30 years of service, then you can retire with uh, your max uh, pension as long as it hasn't been um, pissed away by politicians or something like that. And I could retire at 55. And then I would love to then shift all my focus to poker and playing full time, not as a professional poker player, because I would have that, you know, have the pension and things like that, but really be able to play live if I wanted to or online if I wanted to know what I'm doing not be old man coffee retired playing, but be a competitive player uh, playing and really then turn all my focus instead of splitting it between work and and poker and things to just poker at 55 on. Um, And that would be kind of my dream is being able to do that um, essentially full time after finishing 30 years of service and what I'm doing. Awesome, man. That sounds like a good plan. What have you extracted from playing poker to that's benefited you in your career? Um, there's, I would say there's, a, there's a lot of corollary that goes back and forth. And I kind of thought about this. I thought this could be, this might be a good question that Brad might ask. So I was kind of thinking about, um, corollaries between what I do or my day job and poker. And if it was a TV show or a movie, of course, what it would be is there's a witness on the witness stand and you're asking questions and their <laughs> eyes starts twitching. And now, you know, they're lying because you play poker. And of course that's not the case at all. Um, but where the corollary I think definitely is, is that um, similar to, um, to actually getting better and winning at poker and having a winning strategy and being able to perform once you're at the table is all the off-table work. And the same thing, if you're getting ready to, to try a jury trial, to, to go to trial on a case, you don't just walk into the courtroom and say, all right, let's put this on and see what happens, especially if it's a serious case and it's a jury trial that's, that is more intensive. Um, you're putting in so much work off of being inside the courtroom. You're doing all everything you can to make sure you know that case better than anyone else that's going to be in that courtroom. So you know everything about it. And in poker, 
our strategies as we kind of break them down is, okay, well, if, if villain does, does this, if villain checks, how do we respond? But if they bet, how do we respond? If they raise, how do we respond? Um, I think that's similar, especially if you are doing something like uh, the, probably the most analogous would be if you're cross-examining someone um, who is testifying and you don't know exactly what they're going to say, because they could say potentially anything. If you're doing it right, you've prepared, you're not caught off guard by anything. If they answer A, then I follow up with B, C, and D as my follow-up questions. But they might not even say A. If they, what if they say E instead? Then I got to go F, G, I. And you got to have that ready and be ready to audible and, and move back and forth. So I think that part of poker definitely correlates with the outside prep and being able to see and prepare potentially you know, three steps ahead in doing so. And, and then also, I think, is once you get in, this kind of goes to the present, you know, Jason Sue's poker with presence type of stuff is that you want to have this unconscious competence of what you're doing because you know it so well. And you know your, strat- your poker strategy so well that you don't have to think as much. You just experience it and you know what you're doing at the table. Um, and if you're doing something like an opening statement or a closing argument, which is a narrative, which is a speech, um, no one that's doing it well isn't putting in tons of hours practicing that closing argument over and over and over and over again the night before you actually have to give it. Um, I joke that my dog has seen me yell at the dog on the couch like it's a murderer practicing trials over and over again and seen more trials than anyone else because the dog sits there as I'm doing this. I'm talking to myself in the basement while the family's asleep preparing for trial. But part of that is so when you get in the courtroom, you're giving this speech, but the jurors don't see it as a speech. You've done it so many times that it's natural. You're actually just talking and you're actually just speaking with them and delivering your argument in a way that doesn't look like it's a rehearsed speech that you've practiced a hundred times. It looks like it's spontaneous, but really it's anything but spontaneous. Um, and you can improvise and you can, you can audible based upon and think on your feet if things change. Um, and you need to be able to do that just like poker, but, um, but you know going in that you have everything down to the point that you can deliver it in a way that, that gets across in the most effective way. And I think there's a lot of correlated with just that outside preparation or the execution inside when you're actually doing that work. And they, they're both games that involve human, right? Like they, they are very human. It's a very human thing that's going down when you're cross-examining somebody and when you're playing poker, like the human element, which is kind of like the ultimate wild card. And it's also why I like poker is so fun and appealing is that like, oh, in this game, somebody can just go all in at any point if they want to. They can just 4X jam if they so choose. And then you've got to deal with it and think on your feet and figure out a solution to this problem that you're now being faced with. And I have to imagine too, that like, as you're prepared in this way to where it comes off natural, by the way, I want to take it to the Danny Handichak show. You know, you, you hear me and John break down hands. I need to see you in the courtroom. Like I want to see the, <laughs> the game tape of you in action. Everyone needs to get vaccinated and wear their masks so we can get back to real life court and all that and not zoom and not all this sort of stuff. And then we can make that happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it also gives you latitude to audible, like you said, right? You, you, you know what you're doing. It's like in poker. I'm sure you've experienced this like in the, in the courtroom setting and probably in poker too, where like you do something that's a little bit out of the ordinary and not something you normally do. And you don't even know why you do it, but then it's on reflection that you're like, God damn, that was good. Like that was really good. I don't know how I just did that. Like spur of the moment. But yeah, that, that just comes from like being very prepared and feeling comfortable and present in the moment, taking a data point that was unforeseen and, you know, leveraging it to your advantage. 
yeah, data points. I mean, that's, that's huge as far as assessing where you need to go. Those data points that you get and that you see and you can foresee maybe where things, what arguments might be made down the line based upon something you're seeing now that's a preview. Well, maybe they're going to be saying this down the line. So now you kind of have a preview of that, but you got to be able to spot it and you got to be able to adjust and audible from whatever you prepared before might totally change because someone says, just like you said, someone four bet shoves, someone says something that you had no idea they were going to say. And all of a sudden, if you turn around and you look stunned and you look like a deer in headlights, then you're going to lose um, credibility uh, in front of a jury. If you can roll with it and you can keep a poker face, like you always look like that's exactly what you expected to happen. No matter what happens, you look like that's exactly what you expected to happen. And that's going to help you versus just turning around, looking at your partner like, whoa, fuck, what do we do now? <laughs> no, no one talked about that happening. Um, and you got to avoid those, those spots too. I, I love it. it. All great stuff. And even there's, there's it also, it ties into like podcasting and having conversations with people. There's this element of like finding passion and reading people, hearing the, you know, how their voice changes to go down something that you know that like, is not something you're prepared to talk about or something you had any idea you were going to be talking about, but exploring it just because you know that they're passionate about it and it seems somewhat interesting. And I think the listener finds that sort of stuff interesting as well. At least I hope they do. I mean, I assume they do if they're still listening to the show after all, however many episodes have been released. Um, yeah, for sure, for sure. And in closing, sir, well, I'll ask you the, the billboard question. If you can put up a billboard Every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does your billboard say? I think it would be, I think it would just say respect. And that would be, I, I think it could be applied in multiple different ways for the dealers at the table that you see if you're playing live and you see dealers that have to, you know, deal with people who are either talking to them in a creepy manner or berating them or, asking them to do things like essentially the, these people are just doing their job. Just let them do their job. Um, you get a new dealer that is inexperienced and you can see they're nervous and struggling. Just shut up and let them do their job. Don't start yelling at them and giving them advice and tell them how they're supposed to break the pot down and shift a pot. To, just let them do their job. So respect them, respect the game, then respect the other players. Um, it's just never going to be a benefit to be mean to someone, disrespect someone. If they're bad, then you're just hurting your, your profit in the long run. If someone's, you know, if someone's an asshole to a bad player and they decide, I'd rather not sit at a table where I'm berated by other people and I'm not going to come back, and there goes that profit. Um, and good, you know, good people too. I'm not overly vocal whenever I play live. I'm pretty quiet. Um, but just respecting everyone, I think, can just go a very, very long way, and it's very easy to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any closing words here? Before we, we part I don't, ways. I don't think so. I mean, just thank you for having me. I guess the one, the one thing I would say is, is for anyone who is in a position, because I think I feel like there's probably a lot of people that are in a relatively similar position I am, which is you love poker, but you're not a pro. You're not trying to be pro. You're trying to be good when you play, and you're trying to play as much as you can. But you're not a pro. You got family. You've got a regular job that you got to go to. Um, go to greatness village and join because it's different than every other poker. It's the only poker community I've ever actually stayed in. It is so positive and it is so um, engaging and everyone is there to help each other. No one is posting um, 
bad beats. No one is complaining. Everyone is, everyone is supportive of each other. Just today I posted a very simple little hand. Do I, should I flat this turn or should I raise this turn? And within a few hours, people in the community had run Pio Sims on what's the best play. There'd been differing opinions and debate back and forth off of one little post from a little hand I played today that was not a big deal. And everything is positive and supportive. And it's just different than every other place you go to. And it's, it's gone from being someone who didn't want to be part of any poker community because it was just, you know, fold pre or you don't know what you're doing or something like that to other people or not necessarily me, but to other people too, um, to a community where I am, I'm on it every single day. Um, it's now, you know, the app that's open the most on my phone and I'm on it every single day and participate every single day. And it's just the most positive productive and enjoyable poker place to be. And you don't have to be a pro um, to get the respect from people that are pros and will engage with you and help you and help analyze your game that are there uh, like you and Thomas and and all the other people that are there. Uh, It's just phenomenal. And I didn't pay Danny to say any of that. He no, said a, no, said no, I know. Own, I know own, it sounds like his no, own volition. Like slurpage. <laughs> no, I know it sounds like slurpage, but it really does. I mean, I've, I've posted things like that in the, in the village before uh, that are unsolicited because it's just, it is just so different and it's so positive. And I've been doing coaching with, with Thomas. That's been great. And it's, it's a place I know as long as you have it, I will be there and we'll be active in it. And I think that, um, you just encourage anyone that's looking for a community like that to join because you definitely won't turn back. I, I really appreciate that, man. And I, I do want to add that like, it's always my fundamental belief in this space that I'm the guide and the listener is the hero, right? You're all the heroes in your own poker journeys. And what I can offer is to be the guide and sort of show you a different way. And for some people, it's going to resonate and make an impact. And for other people, it may not. And so if you want to try it out, try it out. And if you don't, then don't. But we are going to run a tight ship in the village and we're not going to stand for any any kind of bullshit. And that's something that I, I am very passionate about. And, and if things did devolve in that way, then I would just silo it more to the people that I like and just kind of start kicking people out. It hasn't come to that because luckily, like you said, people get smacked down just sort of organically and they realize very quickly that like stuff like that's not tolerated. And the people, I mean, the people that stay and are active are the people that are continue to be positive. So if someone, you know, if someone doesn't have that same kind of uh, feeling about it and they try to be negative or post bad beats, it's the whole community as a whole is like, that's not kind of how it works here. Um, and they get that real quickly that it's not going to be entertained. Not that everyone's like mean to them, but it's just not going to be entertained. And then they kind of move along and they just filter themselves out. And what's left is all the real people that are there um, that are there for all the positive reasons. And it's great. And I, I think that one of the funny parts about it is like people th- believe, I think, mistakenly that they're the only ones that go through bad stretches and they're the only ones that like get unlucky. And it's like, they'll post, somebody will post something and it's like, yeah, man, we're like, there's 50 of us in here that have gone through the same thing like this week. So like either man up, grow a pair, get stronger and move on, or just find another place to complain and talk about your bad beats. Because like, we're all going through all this shit and like, we don't need this other thing to kind of like bring us down and make us feel worse because we're all going through it. Yeah, no. And it's, I mean, it, there, there's an aspect of it that's, that's poker psychology where everyone helps each other because 
you also, um, this is the only place I've ever seen where people will feel okay being vulnerable enough to post about terrible downswings and things like, and not playing well and not posting bad beats, posting about how they're disappointed in their own play and they've gone through this big downswing. And I did that. I think it might've been back in, in February or something or, or March where I had a bad one and I had a long post about all my feelings about it and vulnerability and, and all that. And I got direct messages, from people saying that, like that post was inspiring. Me talking about how much I lost that month was inspiring to them because of how I, I felt comfortable enough because of the community to actually say like, here's why I think I lost so much. Here's why I think I, I was doing these things and everyone's responses. And we started our own little group of like, a, let's regroup for this next month it would, that a bunch of people came into and everyone um, has said things like, I've gone through months like that and here's what I did or try this or try that or I'm going through the same thing right now and reading your thing and, and the fact that you're not ashamed to say, hey, I had a rough month um, that a lot of people are ashamed because everyone wants to pretend they're always winning all the time um, and to hear from people that are great, great players saying, oh, I had a terrible month too or here's what happens and here's how we get through it. It makes you feel better and it makes you feel like you want to fire up the next game or study more or um, get back on the village and, and post more hands or whatever, because being vulnerable is 100% accepted and encouraged. And people, I got so much gratification, people reaching out, talking about what a shitty month I had and whatever that was, February or March, that was better than any post of, I kicked ass this other month. Look, I was 18 BBs per 100 this month. This was awesome. A lot of that was like thumbs up emoji. Good job. But the, I had a really terrible month was ongoing discussions of, um, how, much everyone else appreciated it and then did their own version of the exact same thing that I appreciated seeing what they did. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of the secret, right? It's like everybody goes through this and this is something that like coming into making chasing poker greatness, the podcast, I knew that when I would bring these guys on that are outwardly seen as very, very successful because I've lived the life. And so I know what it looks like. Um, you just know that it didn't, it's not linear progression. And there are certainly times when you feel like giving up and times when you don't know whether or not you can move forward and you just feel so, so, so bad. And everybody experiences, experiences it that's ever tried to play poker at a high level. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. And people relate to that kind of post because they see themselves in it. And it's just very relatable because we've all lived through it, right? And, and this is the truth. And at, in the village, we're going to honor the truth. This is what happens. Some months are great and some months are shitty. And we can't just ignore the shittiness um, and pretend like it doesn't exist because it's a part of the journey that we need to talk about. And if you acknowledge the shitty months and you find ways to help work through it and, and grow from it, then you're going to have more good months than you're going to have shitty months. If you hide it and you just pretend like you have winning months, then you're destined to just have more and more losing months. In my opinion. Well, you're also destined, you're also like being inauthentic and telling something that isn't in line with reality. And we always know that as ourselves. And it just leads to like all sort of psychological bad stuff in the, in the long run that I think is probably pretty unhealthy as well. It's like cheating at golf when you're playing by yourself. Like what <laughs> right. you, why are you cheating at golf at all? And if you're, then it's just all a big lie. So what's, what's the point, <laughs> you know, why, exactly. why put on that facade? It makes no sense. For sure. And Danny, thank you very much for your time and your energy. I've enjoyed it. Enjoyed getting to know you better. And, uh, anybody out there want to hop in the village, greatnessvillage.com. 
you can hang out with all the folks that have been on this villager centric episodes of chasing poker greatness danny any parting words and then Just, we'll sign off thank you so much can't wait for again things to get a little more back to normal because what i want next is the cpg us tour you and some of the guys come to chicago we all get together go to austin where some of these people are in dallas and all these different places and instead of just being, uh, you know, chats and things like that, we all get a chance to get together. That's what I think is the big next fun step. Yeah. Los Angeles is another spot on the tour. Just figure out, figure out a way for me to like be able to make money while I'm doing this, going to all the little different spaces. Like you own a laptop, <laughs> you can fire, you can fire up your, your one KNLs and, and be just fine. That's true. That's true. Danny, have a good day, man. Great Thank you so you much. It's been an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.